are entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, begins his testimony today on Capitol Hill. It was behind closed doors, but already the speculation about what he's going to say about the Donald is flying fast and furious. We'll get to that. But also coming up right now, how does socialism come to America? Bernie Sanders has a plan and the Green New Deal is a big part of it. We got that and more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. That climate change is real is an existential threat to our country and the entire planet. The biggest threat to our prosperity in this 21st century is climate change. And if we don't have the bravery and the courage and the heart and the determination to take it on as the most important challenge of our lifetime, then we don't care about those children. Climate change is an existential threat to us as human beings. The threat is real and it is existential and we need to take action now. And I'm quoting him now. America, this is the president. America will never be a socialist country. Will that hold true if you're elected president? If I am elected president, we will have a nation in which all people have health care as a right, whether Trump likes it or not. We are going to make public colleges and universities tuition free. We are going to raise the minimum wage to Uh, to a living wage of at least 15 bucks an hour. And whether Trump likes it or not, when I talk about human rights, you know what that also means? It means that our kids and grandchildren have the human right to grow up in a planet that is healthy and habitable. You know Bernie is serious when he's yelling loudly about free this and free that and free everything and welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. He's a man, also from New York, Buck Sexton, although technically right now he's in D.C. Why is he lying? Must be, must be because he spent so much time with Trump. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, though. Great to have you here. I, I, that was intentional, the top of the show there. Well, it always is intentional, but, but there was a reason why we wanted to play for you. All of the hysteria around the Green New Deal and socialism and all this stuff. Okay, all of that. And then Bernie Sanders not being willing, or a better way to say this, Buck, speak the English, being unwilling to say that this will not be a socialist country. The door was wide open there, Bern. You know, you had Wolf Blitzer reading off the cue card like someone who's still working on his English. Uh, Wolf Blitzer wants to know if this will, as Donald Trump says, never be a socialist country. Bernie says... A whole bunch of things that sound pretty socialist. So on the one hand, you have all this Green New Deal lunacy. I mean, crazy talk. Existential threat. Oh, let's deploy 12-year-olds. My mommy told me that unless unless we all take bicycles to work and the cows stop farting, we're all going to die. This is terrible. They're telling children this stuff. These are 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds. I should be thinking about Santa and, you know, whatever games kids that are 10 or 12 play, I have no idea. I'm starting to turn into that uncle who, like, doesn't never gets the kids the cool presents because I just don't know what kids like. 
You know, whatever kids do these days at 10, you know, play sports, run outside, you know, go, go skin your knee riding a bike, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, there's a reason why we're hearing about all this craziness about the Green New Deal and, and, and how there needs to be this imminent action, immediate, severe action on climate change at the same time when we're also being told more openly than ever that the country needs to be a democratic socialist state, that we need a democratic socialist in the White House. Let me say this to you. Can you think of a better way to get this country to fall into the trap of socialism than through the environment? and environmental extremism. If you were trying to come up with a way to make people think that the country is in desperate need of a dramatic overhaul of the economy that will put the government in charge of basically everything, could you do better than to have the entirety of the left-wing news media apparatus, the Democratic Party, college campuses, Hollywood, all of it mobilized behind this idea that we are going to be extinct as a species. We are going to cease to exist unless we put the government in charge of everything. Everything. That's the beauty for the statist of climate change hysteria, climate change alarmism. What is not in the purview of the government? What can the government... The government can tell you what products you can use in your business, in your home, what kind of energy you can use, how much energy you can use. The government can intervene in your day-to-day habits. The government can decide what is too much for you to have. Your carbon footprint is too large. Your house is too big. You have too many cars. Only one car for you. Maybe a car that you have to share. Maybe a Prius, even. Sorry, I can't help but take digs at the Prius folks sometimes. I know, great gas mileage. Ugliest car I've ever seen in my life, but great gas mileage. This is a perfect plot. You could not think of a better plot, really for the left and the statists to find a way to make the country not just go toward democratic socialism, but put us on a pathway to full-on socialism where the government has control of the means of production as well as the distribution, and where there's nothing outside of the government's purview. And keep in mind that even failure to follow through on the promises that this new green socialist utopia that they're telling us about, even when they can't accomplish the emissions reductions that they say they will, and even when they cannot create millions of green new jobs. I keep hearing this. We had a billionaire left-winger named Steyer come into the Hill today. I didn't get to interview him because he only wanted to inter- only wanted to talk to my co-host. But he's saying that unless you take dramatic uh, and and you know severe action on climate change he could never support you well 
What better way could there be than to put the government in charge of everything than to say that we are going to be extinct unless they are in control of all of these things? That the very, very rich, of course, right now, who are Democrats, will get an exemption from all this, the Tom Steyers of the world, because they're so necessary in their messaging, you see. Where is the CO2 in our economy? What does what if if we are really worried that the world is going to end, if we're going to make 10 and 12 year olds cry, little kids, grade school kids cry, as well as teach them to be rude to sitting U.S. senators because we're so desperate to get this messaging out there. Where does most of the CO2 they're worried about come from? The two biggest areas are transportation and the creation of energy. Well, if they can control transportation and they can control the energy flow, they have a stranglehold on the lifeblood of our of our econ- uh, economic activity. And as they are unable to hit the marks that they set for themselves here, they'll just say, well, we need more control. They're never going to they're never going to loosen their grip if they can get this. Bernie Sanders and the rest of them are serious about this. Ocasio-Cortez, yes, she is an ignoramus, but we need to take her seriously because the damage that she will do to this country if her ideology continues to spread is serious. There are many Democrats now, they won't admit it because it's not yet popular, who wish that we would be a socialist country. They think we're very, very rich, so we don't have to worry about being Venezuela. We're just going to be a giant version of Denmark with a lot less social cohesion, I might I might add, and a much higher tolerance for corruption and government uh, government bureaucrats who are lethargic at best. These Norwegian countries, or rather these Scandinavian countries, Norway is a country, these, these Scandinavian countries are known for having more efficient government services than we do on a much smaller scale than we would have to have. And they also have much more liberalized economies when it comes to the corporate sphere than we do in many ways. Lower corporate tax burden, oh yes, it's true. Much higher individual tax burden, but that also is true across the middle class. If, if in fact, the Democrats could get a presidential candidate through who could make this who could make this transformation complete. Remember, Obama promised to fundamentally transform the country, and he took us quite a quite a ways in that direction. To to speak of socialism in the Obama era, to speak of Obamacare as merely a stepping stone on the way to Medicare for Medicare for all, which is really just single payer. That was wrong. It was a lie. It was racist. Oh, no, actually, it was all true. It wasn't racist at all. It was just reality. Socialism was making its first run on this country under the Obama era in a way that was open, in a way that we could see that was obvious. They just weren't calling it that. Now they're calling it that. And the Green New Deal, the reason there's such an emphasis on this, on a plan that is so full of holes, that is so pie in the sky and silly, and worthy of ridicule, the reason for this is because it is the single best, fastest way, now that they've already gotten us 
rolling down the hill towards single payer, towards socialized medicine. That's where we're heading. Because they're not going to be able to give the health care. Medicare for all is not going to work. They don't have the practitioners. They don't have the means of production, if you will, in health care to fulfill the obligations that they want to create for all Americans. They don't have it. So what will they then do? Well, now we're just going to have to make them all employees of the state. They will have to control the means of production of health care. They'll have to control the hospitals, and then we will be in socialized medicine. That is socialized medicine. But how do you get the rest of the economy? You create a false crisis. That's right. The false climate crisis that you say is the single most important thing in the world right now. And that's not an exaggeration. That is taking them exactly at their word. The most important problem we as human beings, as a species face, and the only way to tackle it is dramatic increases in government control of the most central parts, most central components of the rest of our modern economy, energy production and transportation. That's where most of the CO2 emissions comes from. They, have our, they want to be in charge of our health care. They want to be in charge of energy production and then the energy used in the production, the manufacturing process, of course. They want to be in charge of the price of goods because a lot of fossil fuels that are used are actually in products themselves. And then they want to tell us how far we can drive, what we can do in terms of transportation, where we can go, what the price will be, what the taxes will be. This is all about control and control on a pathway towards full-on socialism. That they may never actually get there is not any comfort to us because this is where they want to go. And even taking us halfway toward a full-on socialist state would be incredibly destructive and would make us less free. And with that, the rest of the world would be less free because we are still, despite all of our flaws and imperfections, the single greatest testament ever created to human liberty, this country. We've got more on socialism, Cohen's testimony, Venezuela, North Korea, Trump in Hanoi. We got a jam-packed show, which is why you come here, because you know we're going to cover all the topics and then some. So stay with me, team. We need to have Medicare for all. That's just the bottom line. Who of us has, has not had that situation where you got to wait for approval and the doctor says, well, I don't know if your, your insurance company is going to cover this? Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. We've got to critically re-examine ICE and its role and the way that it is being administered and the work it is doing. And we need to probably think about starting from scratch. Education is a fundamental right. And we will guarantee that right with universal pre-K and debt-free college. We have a history of racism in America. So you are for some type of yes, I am. reparation. Okay. Yes, I am. Now that's establishment favorite on the among the Democrats, uh, Kamala Harris, just reciting one after another of these policies that Bernie Sanders would be in favor of. Medicare for all, 
start from scratch with Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. So she's single payer, open borders, uh, universal pre-K and, and just paying for everyone's school, no college debt. Where is this stuff all going to come? Where's the money going to come from for all of this? Who's going to pay the people that are supposed to be delivering these services? So I want to make it very clear. It's not just AOC, Ocasio-Cortez, and Bernie Sanders. This is now the Democrat Party mainstream. I know today there was some talk about whether uh, whether Joe Biden's going to get in the race or not, as if we're supposed to be excited about this. I mean, who cares? But anyway, there's this talk about, oh, is is Joe Biden, you know, blue-collar Joe, is he going to throw his hat in the ring? And I I just step back and say, I don't think that Biden really knows how he's going to play this because if he tries to run among the Democrats at this stage, the primary as a kind of Hillary Clinton esque establishment, you know, corrupt pay to play uh, corporatist, which is what Hillary was. uh, He's not going to make it through the primary, but is, is Joe Biden going to sound authentic when he all of a sudden is saying free college, you know, free health care, all this stuff, you know, rebuild ice from scratch. He can't compete with the left-wing loons here. I don't even think he can pretend to be loony and left-wing enough to be in the to be in contention with some of them. But this is now the mainstream, and that's why while you and I sit here and say this Green New Deal thing, you know, hearkening back to FDR, that president that we're all supposed to think is so great, even though, you know, the internment camps and the court packing threats, and there's a lot of stuff about FDR that somehow gets uh, left out of this. Oh, that the new, that, that the, uh, the programs he put in place didn't actually save us from the Great Depression. That's a good place to start, isn't it? But the notion of a Green New Deal is not the fringe. This is central to the Democratic Party because the Democrats are not liberal. They are statists. They are socialists. They are not the blues. They are the reds. And we are finally seeing this happen now. Now we are at a tipping point. Let's speak truthfully about it. Morning coffee is an American institution. I I drink it every day. And that's why when it comes to starting my day right, full of freedom, promise, and patriotism, I reach for the most delicious, most American coffee on the market, Black Rifle Coffee. This is how I get my day started. I tell you, it's delicious coffee, and I'm somebody that really cares what his coffee tastes like. Also, it's got quite a punch to it. But if you want decaf, you can get decaf too. Try Black Rifle Coffee. This will become your coffee of choice, just like it is for me. I get it delivered every month. It's roast to order, guaranteed fresh delivered to your door. And while liberals threaten to further tax your hard-earned money with their socialist agenda, Black Rifle Coffee is fueling the fight for freedom by upping their offer to 20% off. It's a great deal. Take advantage by visiting blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 20% off your entire order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 20% off. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. We're at another inflection point where American justice is either going to be vindicated or desecrated. And Michael Kong has answers to some of the questions that the American people need to know. I just think it's crazy that the first witness that the Democrats call to testify before Congress is a guy who's been convicted or pled guilty to lying to Congress. 
I mean, it's just crazy. This is about trying their best to discredit the president of the United States. The Cohen situation unfolds before us right now. Michael Cohen, President Trump's personal lawyer, is uh, today he gave testimony about well, Russia stuff, I guess, behind closed doors. And everyone goes, ooh, I wonder what it was. Guess what? He's already had to tell Mueller whatever he knows about that. There was no collusion. He can't make anything up about it because there's nothing to make up. It's a whole lot of nothing. I think it's interesting how many people on the left don't seem to care that what you have here is a lawyer testifying against his client for his own purposes. No one seems to think that this is particularly bothersome on the left. No Democrats are just just by the principle of this. And I know, oh, Buck, well, don't be... Don't be naive. Democrats have no principles when it comes to this stuff. I, I understand that. But I, I have to note that there's something, certainly there's a there's a funky smell when you have somebody's former lawyer who is testifying against him in this uh in this way. Okay. It's it's certainly um problematic to say the least. Andy McCarthy, our buddy. He's making the rounds on TV because he's one of the best analysts out there on this issue. He was saying, by the way, Cohen, he's a big liar, as we know. Play 14. If the prosecutors had thought he was a valuable, credible witness, they would have completed a cooperation agreement with him. They would have gotten over whatever hump there was in the negotiations and signed him up as a full-fledged cooperator. They declined to do that, and I have to think they did that because they didn't think he was a very useful or valuable witness. Why would anyone think that at this point in time we would get some kind of a bombshell revelation about Russia collusion from Michael Cohen? We've been through so much of this nonsense with the Mueller probe. Cohen has been hit with all kinds of legal, uh, you know, legal attacks here. I mean, as we know, Cohen is in trouble for lying, for not paying his taxes. He's facing, I think, five years in prison. Southern District of New York went after him. There was no Mueller cooperation agreement because he's not a cooperating witness for Mueller because he has nothing to offer Mueller because Russia collusion is not just a lie. It's a stupid, it's a stupid idea to begin with, okay? It's not, it's not a good lie. It's not even a plausible conspiracy. Of course, the left doesn't care about any of that. They just know that it's a way of attacking this administration and doing everything possible to try and tear Trump down. What do they think they're really going to find out here? Well, we have been told, and the left awaits all of this with with breathless anticipation, we have been told that Michael Cohen may say that Trump was shady in his business dealings and that he said things that would be considered racially insensitive or racist. We know that Michael Cohen's a liar because he has said he's a liar and he has been prosecuted for lying even under oath. We know that he has no ethics because he's a lawyer who was taping his client. I mean, this is like somebody who's a psychiatrist who would tape the person that goes in to see them. I mean, it's such a violation, such an absolute disgrace. And... Yet Michael Cohen did that, and the Democrats want us to believe that now he's going to come forward and just share the whole truth and nothing but the truth because he believes so much in 
so much in this country, in our institutions, they say. Uh, Michael Cohen, I see here, according to CNN, apologized, apologized, according to multiple sources, for lying to Congress when he was talking to Congress. When will the Democrats get it? This is not going to be enough. They're not going to win based on this. They're not going to take Trump down because Michael Cohen says nasty things about him, says that he's a bad guy, a bad business partner, any of these things. It's not going to get it done. I think that they've, at least some of them understand this. But what they also understand is that they hate this president so much that this is really just about scratching an itch for them. This is about they have this desire to bring Trump down in whatever way they can, however they can. And even if it doesn't work for them in the long run in terms of the 2020 election, and I don't think it will. I think it is more likely that this anti-Trump hysteria as it, as it, as it relates to Russia and the investigations are going to start... People are tired of this. I mean, I'm tired of it. I wish I want us to move past it just because I don't think it's an it's an interesting intellectual exercise anymore. I don't think that that even having this debate feels like a, a worthy enterprise. The only reason I do it here on the show is because we have to, because they won't give up. They won't move past it. They are still stuck on this. And that's what the next few days are going to be about. Oh, they're going to just be reporting with with glee. They'll be unable to disguise their glee by having Cohen talk about the, the payments to porn stars, the payments to these, or one's a porn star, one was a pinup model, different different things. Um, but the payments to these women and you know, Trump's business practices. And what what I think the American people are going to come away with is, why are we supposed to care about this? Even even if some of it is true, does that mean that we want to put the party for the party of socialism, infanticide, and open borders in charge? Let's just say that Trump did some of the shady business practices that Michael Cohen is, I'm sure, going to ex- expand upon at length in this hearing tomorrow when he's in open testimony. Would you want the the party of Ocasio Cortez to run the country? Would you want the Democrats to be able to take more of your money, be able to pursue more disastrous economic and immigration and health care policies, to uh, ally with the media in, in outright delusions like the Green New Deal, the idea that the, that the world is going to be destroyed unless we spend trillions and trillions of dollars on what is nothing more than, than a, a religion for the left? that transgender individuals who compete, who are biological males against women, have no real advantage. I mean, they, they will just defy common sense, history, logic, and rationality in so many ways. But, oh, 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 but, you know, we're sending a message because Trump was a little bit too rough around the edges in some of his business dealings? Because Trump was perhaps an, a... a Look, let's not. Imperfect husband sounds like I'm covering from the guy. I mean, you know, the guy's been married three times. He's had uh, he's had some issues there. We already know this. We elected him anyway. I'm not sitting around trying to pass moral judgment 
on all politicians. I'm trying to push for the best policies for the country. I think a lot of people feel the same way about Trump. They see what's happening in America right now, and they say, seems like things are pretty good, certainly in the right direction. Why would we want to change this based on what Michael Cohen says? The only thing that I, I can't give you an answer to, although Matt Schlapp told me today on my, on Rising that, uh, I forget the word he used, but, you know, sketchy, bad people. Trump sometimes, he does not pick the best people. He has picked some very bad, sketchy people, and that's just a fact. And unfortunately, some of that's come back to bite him, and that's going to happen tomorrow with Michael Cohen. But he'll move on, Trump will be fine, and the media is just going to get themselves all worked up over nothing. Why have you stopped short of calling Maduro of Venezuela a dictator? Well, he, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that the last election was undemocratic. Uh, but there are still democratic operations taking place in that country. The point is, what I am calling for right now is uh, internationally supervised free elections. And I do find it interesting that Trump is very concerned about what goes on in Venezuela. But what about the last election that took place in Saudi Arabia? Oh, there wasn't any election in Saudi Arabia. Oh, women are treated as third-class citizens. So I find it interesting that Trump is kind of selective as to where he is concerned about democracy. My record is to be concerned about democracy all over the world. So we've got to do everything we can. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the people of Venezuela who determine the future of their country. I find it interesting that Bernie likes commies. You you see this, you hear this. We play the audio for you. Bernie Sanders has a soft spot for commies, for hardcore socialists. He really does. He he did with the Soviet Union while people were imprisoned, while while the gulag system was, you know, in operation, while you have people getting sent to Siberia and all this stuff. Bernie Sanders is talking about how, you know, bread lines aren't that bad. The bread's pretty chewy. It's not you know, it's not amazing, but you put some salt on it, tastes okay. But he won't call Maduro of Venezuela a dictator. Why? He'll call Trump, I'm sure, if you ask him to, a, a wannabe dictator. I mean, he'll say all kinds of horrible things about the current president of the United States, but he won't say anything terrible about Maduro. He holds back on that. I think we should ask the question, why? What is it about Maduro that Bernie Sanders has a certain fondness for? What is it about Maduro that holds Bernie Sanders back? And I think we all know that Bernie Sanders has an affinity for not just democratic socialism, but all-out radical socialism, and maybe even up to and including communism. There's a record here, folks. There's a record. They can say whatever they want now about how Bernie's just this cuddly guy from Vermont and he loves Ben and Jerry's ice cream and he's all kooky and funny and the crazy professor look at all this stuff. At the end of the day, Bernie Sanders gets far more upset, far more aggravated with President Trump than he ever has or ever would, it seems, with Maduro. And let me just say that this Oh, look at look at Saudi Arabia. You know, yeah, Saudi Arabia is a despotism. That's true. No question about it. We all know this. But 
if we're really going to have this conversation, I mean, Saudi Arabia doesn't have people who are starving to death. Saudi Arabia doesn't have a inflation rate of a million percent. I mean, Venezuela has been destroyed as a country, and it has been destroyed by people who, in their rhetoric, in their political approach, mirror a lot of what the Democratic Party in this country is trying to do and achieve. That's just what is happening. So, you know, Bernie can find all these different ways to try and deflect and talk about something else and make it sound like, you know, Trump is the bad guy here. But we know, we know that Bernie Sanders thinks that Maduro's problem is just that, you know, bad timing and he didn't do it right. Always the same excuse with communism. He didn't do it right. I think I've told you here on the show before that one of the big problems that they had in Venezuela was the seizure of companies, the seizure of private assets by the government and price controls. The government, under the auspices of trying to do things that would help the poor, would help their version of the of the working class in Venezuela, would go after what they considered to be wealthy corporations, what were called wealthy corporations at the time, and it sounded okay, right? Oh, this this company that that makes, you know, that 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 uh, makes refrigerators, or this company that produces some kind of a food stuff, you know, they're they're making too much money. Let's just give more to the people. I don't think that Bernie Sanders has any problem with that at all. In fact, I think we know that he still thinks that that's a very important, not just from the perspective of what works, but important moral act. You know, he's going to try to take from companies in this country to pay for his ideas. Play clip eight. Am I going to demand that the wealthy and large corporations start paying their fair share of taxes? Damn right, I will. All right. And let me give you, you know, people say, where are you going to get the money? Where are you going to get the money? Amazon, owned by the wealthiest guy in the world, made $5 billion last year in profits. Anyone here know how much they paid in taxes? That's right. That's where we're going to begin getting the money. Notice how he says begin. Even though this class warfare stuff, and this is what they did in Venezuela. Chavez would go on TV and say, these rich landowners, these rich farmers, these rich manufacturers, we need to take their stuff. At first, it was we need them to charge less for their stuff and they couldn't make a profit. And then when they couldn't create more stuff, Chavez and then Maduro said, well, we'll just take the factory now. We'll run it. It's ours. How far off is that from what Bernie Sanders is saying here? But notice how he says that's where we'll start. As I have told you, the money here is really with the middle class. It's always with the people. The money in this country is with everyday normal folks that are working jobs, that are paying their mortgages, that are you know trying to feed their families. That's because there's so many more of them. And they're going to try to come up with all these different ways to hide how they're taking money from those people. But they are, at the end of the day, they are going to take money from those people, whether through taxation or through rationing of government programs that they've been promised or You name it. There are all these different ways the government can't make this stuff happen. There's no magic, whether it's Maduro or Sanders. 
It's just not going to work. But people want to believe it, and so they will. Socialism is a very real threat now in this country, just like it is a threat and has now destroyed Venezuela. We'll talk more about Venezuela and Maduro um, coming up in the show later on, but I, I've got it. I always say this to you, and maybe I'll just I'll stop. You know what? Yeah, from now on, I'm going to talk to you about about issues of life and the, and the pro life cause on the show, and not say I know that people sometimes it's a little too intense for them, but the Democrats just took another swipe at life uh, yesterday, and and I I want to tell you what they've done, and I I am honestly angry, deeply angry about what they've done. We'll be right back. I've been talking about Snippy.com a lot here on the show. It's a new social media site that does not discriminate against conservative points of view. Well, if you looked at Snippy.com in the past and you left, you need to check it out one more time. Thousands and thousands of listeners to this show have joined Snippy.com. They know it's totally free to use, totally free to join, and they're expressing their opinions and getting all kinds of fiery conversations going. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform. Look, I've had friends who are banned from the big social media platforms you've already heard about and you've probably been using. Don't let yourself get caught in that trap. Post and engage in a place where freedom of expression is the first principle, all right? Snippy's a place where you're free to express your thoughts and share your opinions. It is totally free to join and open to everyone. So join us at snippy.com and let your opinion matter. No shadow banning and no suppression of conservative thought ever. Again, go to snippy.com, that's S-N-I-P-P-Y.com, start your account today. Does Facebook discriminate against conservatives? We know the answer to this. But they always turn around and say, oh, but it's just a mistake. Oh, it's not really happening because of ideology. It's because of the algorithms and all the fancy engineering, back-end, blah 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 all that stuff. Can't be because of a bias against the right, a bias against conservatism. Well, I want to bring on somebody who can speak from some personal experience to this issue. Our buddy Raheem Kassam of RaheemKassam.com, former advisor to Nigel Farage, author of No Go Zones. You see him all over the place. Raheem also has a robust following on Facebook. And he joins us now to talk to, uh, talk to us about what happened here. Raheem, great to, great to have you, my friend. What walk us through it here? How did how did Facebook come after Raheem? Hey, Buck. Well, yeah, thanks for having me and, and for letting me talk about this. You know, this is something that I think a, a lot of us on the political right have experienced um, in recent months and, and years. In fact, now uh, is that, that our opinions are often uh, deleted um, at, or our, our, our accounts are throttled, shadow banned. Um, you know, all, all sorts of mechanisms and algorithms and manual interventions that the big social media giants use to make sure that conservative thought is suppressed uh, and liberal thought and cultural Marxist uh, thought um, is, 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 is sort of projected out there more. And I woke up this morning uh, to find that I had been locked out of uh, my Facebook page, my Facebook account, which manages, which administers uh, uh, 160,000 fans of mine in, in, in my own page. And of course, for somebody like me, uh, who makes their living, uh, by selling books and, and relying on the donations of ordinary people, uh, that's an incredibly, 
uh, scary thing to happen out of nowhere, especially when, as Facebook did, uh, when they when they don't tell you what's um, you know what you're supposed to have done wrong. That's that's what they did to me, and that's what they did to a, a handful of accounts this morning. Just full on deletion and no explanation uh, as to why. So so uh, that that was the story as it stood this morning. Um, luckily for me, but. I have uh, uh, friends in medium to high places, such as yourself, um, and, and lots of people sort of wrote to my rescue uh, by tweeting about it, uh, sharing the story uh, that I had been uh, uh, banned. Uh, lots of news outlets uh, wrote about it this morning, uh, and even the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., tweeted multiple times about it and did, did some television hits about it today. Uh, so it's all well and good for me, uh, being in, in somewhat of a, 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 an elite media bubble, uh, as we are, but for ordinary people, for ordinary conservatives out there all across the Western world who don't have the ability to call in favors with people, who, who aren't the subject of news articles when they get their account shut down, it, it can be an incredibly um, uh, you know, desperate thing if that happens to them. Because people use these social media platforms not just to air their political opinions, but to keep in touch with their friends and their family members and to share photos over the course of decades. Um, and all of that can go in just a heartbeat. And so that's that's why I think this is so important. It's all well and good for people like me, but, but for ordinary people out there, this, especially people of a certain age, this could really lead to some, some catastrophic things. How bad do you think the problem is with Facebook specifically? I mean, I, I've, I've wondered, is there one platform that is the most anti-conservative? What do you think? Well, it's interesting. They all, sort, they all seem to do it in slightly different ways. Um, and I think they all do it in slightly different ways because they then share information with each other um, on what the best way to make uh, their own internal liberal biases work are. Uh, you know, Google ranks uh, pro-abortion posts uh, higher in its search results, and, and, and it was found to be lying about that in congressional testimony uh, not just a couple of months ago. Um, Facebook does uh, mass deletions a lot quicker. Twitter shadow bans, which it mean, which by which I mean that, that they will allow you to post certain things, but those things won't necessarily appear in other people's news feeds. Um, they just sort of go out into the ether and disappear, uh, even to the point where yeah, it's happened to the president of the United States um, in the last year. Um, so they all do it in slightly different ways. So I wouldn't say that one is necessarily worse than the other. I think they're all they're all as nefarious um, as one another in this regard. And the, the fact of the matter is. Um, that no political figure, sadly, on the political right, who is in a position to legislate on the matter or undo the existing legislation that protects these companies, like the provisions in the Communications Decency Act in the United States, they're not acting on it. And while I'm delighted that, that Donald Trump Jr. is so active about this, he's not in a legislative position. And I just wonder what it's going to take for, for conservative politicians to realize that they cannot leave it too late for their own constituency, their own voters, their own supporters, um, before they're just completely eradicated off, off, off social media in, entirely. What do you think we should do? What should be done? Well, so there are, there are uh, several provisions that, that exist at the moment that protect these firms, that protect them especially from being thought of as, as publications, from being thought of as publishers with, with editors. 
but they are publishers with editors because they decide what content goes up, they decide what trends, they decide what goes into the algorithms that automate those decisions. Um, so at the end of the day, they are just like, Google is just like the New York Times in that regard. And Twitter is just like uh, the Daily Caller in that regard. You know, they still have people calling the shots on editorial decisions. Now, the Communications Decency Act uh, in the U.S. actually protects social media firms and says they cannot be thought of as publishers. If they're not thought of as publishers, then they get away with this because they can't be sued for doing this stuff. They can't be sued for what goes on the site, and they can't be sued for actually uh, uh, banning people like me. I would have no case in court to make today about that. If you remove those provisions in the Communications Decency Act, remember, I'm not asking for more government interference. I'm actually asking to have governmental interference taken away from the industry as it stands right now. And if you remove that, you bring ordinary people one step closer to holding social media giants to account. Raheem Kassam, everybody. Raheem, I've been telling folks that I'll be at CPAC this Friday. You're going to be at CPAC. When are you speaking? What are you speaking on? And how do people find Raheem the Dream? <laughs> I'll be doing a book signing at CPAC at, uh, I think, 5 p.m. on the Friday, uh, then speaking on the Saturday at 2.30 p.m. on the main stage talking about Brexit. And then later on that evening, um, Mike Cernovich is holding a, a, uh, an event, uh, which I've just agreed to speak at, about social media bias. Uh, and he asked me to do that just today. So three times that you can come and see me at CPAC. And if you can't find me in those places, you'll probably safely assume I'm going to be at one of the bars. There you go, everybody. If you see Raheem, just remember, he likes single malt, and he likes scotch old enough to order its own scotch. There you go. All right, everybody. Raheem Kassam. Raheem, I'll see you at CPAC. Team, we'll be right back. It's hard to find the right candidate for that job opening. You've got a ton of resumes that will come in from all these different sites, and maybe a lot of the resumes aren't very good, or maybe you don't get many resumes at all because you don't know where to post. Well, that's not smart. I got an idea. I want to make this easy for you. Go to ZipRecruiter. That's what I've done to hire people, and I've gotten the best people, all right? ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. There's one place where you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and easy. Forget about all those other ways. A place where businesses will get connected to qualified candidates, and that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash buck, all right? You need to check it out for yourself. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading boards. They don't stop there. They have powerful matching technology, too. ZipRecruiter will scan thousands of resumes to find the best people. My listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. We're no longer dealing with a normal, traditional Democratic Party. We're looking at a party that has been dragged so far to the left, it would have been unrecognizable to folks just a few years ago. In 1996, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan condemned partial birth abortion by comparing it to infanticide. That was a distinguished, mainstream Democratic senator from New York about 20 years ago. And today, Today, 94% of Senate Democrats could not even vote to protect babies after they're born. And the only explanations they could offer were bizarre euphemisms and vague references to issues that have no bearing 
once a child has already been born alive. Mitch McConnell speaking forcefully, speaking truthfully about how far left and how completely immoral and outrageous the Democrat Party has become. You will not hear this into, uh, you know, will not hear this on most of the news networks out there. They will not be spending time covering this in any detail and CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times. It's treated as a as a procedural, unimportant vote. It is anything but that. This is a day, yesterday, that should live in infamy for the Democrat Party. And it should also serve as a clarifying moment for the rest of us as to what the other side is willing to do, how disgusting and depraved they're willing to be, and what it means to be on the wrong side of an issue, and dare I say the wrong side of history, as the Democrats are here. The wrong side of morality, the wrong side of God, if I may say so. Ben Sass is not one of my favorite senators, but that doesn't really matter. People who do good things are doing good things. He is right on many things. He is right on this issue. Nebraska Senator Sass uh, sponsored the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And this is a very straightforward bill. You'll notice that in many of the write-ups of this, and I saw this when it happened last night, Uh, In many of the write-ups, they don't link the text of the bill. So they can give you whatever interpretation, whatever weasel words and distraction terms that they want. They don't want you to read the text of the bill. Here's what the bill says, give or take. That a baby that survives an abortion procedure must be given outside of the mother, the same care that any other baby would under the circumstances or else the doctor will be held criminally liable. Now, that could not be a more straightforward, more clear moral proposition. Essentially, a baby is a baby. Babies deserve to be protected. Babies are precious. Babies are life. They are us, they are our future, they are our children, and the law must protect life. Well, 44 Democrats in the Senate blocked this bill. They blocked this bill because we now have this self-imposed rule in the Senate that I completely disagree with. It is non-constitutional. It is self-imposed that to get anything important done, you need... 60 votes. That's not what the Constitution says. That's not what the Senate's supposed to be. 51. It's tough enough to get 51 on the same page. The number is not 60, but now the Senate allows it to be 60. And on this issue, a grave injustice was done because there are 44 Democrats who went against this. Um, there were some Republicans, I would note. I'm sorry, some uh, Democrats, rather, who voted with the Republicans. A handful of them. Because they come from red states where they want to convince voters that they're pro 
life, even though really they are part of the pro-choice movement because Democrats are the party of abortion. There's no way around this. There's no other way that we should try to discuss this. The Democratic Party is the party of abortion. Um, Senator Hirono, who I say, and I'm not trying to be funny, I do think is probably the dumbest person in Congress, certainly close to it. Uh, But she occasionally says something truthful because she does not have the guile, she does not have the intellectual complexity to come up with a lie on the spot. And she spoke about what the Democrats are in favor of and what this bill uh, would have done or would have prevented. Play clip 13. Let's be clear. The Senate isn't debating this legislation today because there is an epidemic of infanticide in this country. There is one. There is not one. There isn't one. Maybe that was Freudian. Maybe it wasn't. There is infanticide going on, though, in this country. As on a massive scale, it's just a question of how obvious is the infanticide. But then we get into the lies, and this is where you have Hirono try to give you one of the versions of the Democrat lies. Remember, it's a very straightforward bill, a baby that survives an abortion procedure, which this, folks, I don't want to get into the details. It's incredibly graphic. It's horrific. But this does happen. A baby that survives an abortion procedure must be cared for by the medical professional who's there. The mother's had mother had no legal liability in this bill. It's just the medical provider. Essentially, the doctor has to keep the baby alive. And that the right to an abortion is not the right to a dead baby, even if the baby is outside of the mother's womb. That's what this clarifies as a matter of law. Senator Hirono tried to do the usual Democrat deflection. Play clip 12. When you strip away the ultra-conservative rhetoric, you're left with a very simple argument from supporters of this legislation, that the moral judgment of right-wing politicians in Washington, D.C. should supersede a medical professional's judgment and a woman's decision. Conservative politicians should not be telling doctors how they should care for their patients. Instead, women, in consultation with their families and doctors, are, the, are in the best position to determine their best course of care. Doesn't speak to the bill at all. Doesn't deal with what's in the bill. Just does the usual meandering women and doctors and decision-making. And I've got news for her. It is illegal for doctors to kill their patients. And a baby outside the womb that is breathing, that is living on its own, is a human being. It is a patient, and that there could be anybody who argues otherwise from the Democrat Party just goes to show you how grotesque and immoral the Democrats have become. Hirono is part of this, and people, if not in politics, in the next life, I can assure you, will be held accountable for this. Because this is an offense against the most basic human decency. I mean, Hirono is an imbecile, but she's also a dangerous imbecile because she's running cover for this barbarity. Senate Democrats couldn't even figure out what the proper lie was to tell about this bill. They, they, they can't be certain. Should they say that it's already illegal or that it shouldn't be illegal? 
Well, depending on who you listen to, depending on whose word you take, it's one or the other. But shouldn't it be obvious? Shouldn't it be obvious? The deceptive language that the media uses, by the way, when they talk about this, is is, uh, one of these instances where you see how deep the bias goes. I mean, two of the areas where the media is the most insanely, not just left-wing, but but radicalized. I mean radicalized even beyond what your average run-of-the-mill Democrat is these days. Guns and abortion. Media is absolutely wacko about guns and abortion. They hate guns as a a class. The media people hate guns, and they are in favor of abortion always in any context, in any case, they don't care for any reason or no reason. This is one of the most horrific things I've ever seen in politics. In many ways, it's the most clear, bright red line violation of morality I've ever seen from the Democratic Party. They have no leg to stand on here. There is no two, there's no two sides to this argument. We are on the right side of this, my friends. Stand tall, keep your shield high, and keep fighting. This isn't about the border. This is about the Constitution of the United States. This is not about politics. It's not about partisanship. It's about patriotism. We would be delinquent in our duties if we did not resist, if we did not fight back uh, to overturn the President's declaration. Delinquent in her duties, she says. What a joke. How ridiculous. How ridiculous these Democrats are. Oh, they're going to pass a, a resolution uh, against Trump and the wall. I mean, this is just so stupid. This is the definition, the definition of just Congress wasting everybody's time. I mean, look, it's politics and I get that, but who cares? Yeah, we already know that the House Democrats don't agree with the National Emergency Declaration. We already know that the left is a de facto open borders party now. When you actually dig into this a little bit, though, what you see is they're not going to get through this. I mean, the the president's going to veto it. They're not going to be able to make this resolution happen or, or get signed by the president. So what is this really all about? It's about Democrats pretending to care all of a sudden about executive power. Nancy Pelosi said earlier today, uh, our founders had a great vision. They did not want a king. This is wrong. We cannot let this proceed. Now, I would be much more open-minded to hearing their constitutional concerns if we had not just seen for eight years of the Obama administration far more sweeping use of executive authority than anything we've seen in the Trump administration In fact, we are all supposed to accept, for some reason, that what Obama had the discretion to do, for some as of yet unknown reason, Trump does not have the discretion to undo. So Obama, according to some federal courts right now, full of activists, left-wing judges, Obama had more power as president than Trump does because they liked Obama, because they agree with DACA. I mean, DACA is... 
as flagrantly unconstitutional and as much an abuse of executive authority as anything that you could think of in the last decade. Probably the single most obvious one, at least. Congress would not do what Obama wanted, so he said, I'm just going to do it in contravention of existing federal law and the stated will of the Congress. In fact, there was a time when the press, because they're a bunch of disgusting toadies, and they were for the, they were for Obama and they still are for the Democratic Party, they were writing things that were undermining the very system of checks and balances we have because it was stopping Obama from doing exactly what he wanted to do. And they just can't accept that. They're not okay with that. You know, they were saying that maybe we should maybe we shouldn't uh, allow the Congress to be intransigent. Remember how much you heard about being obstructionist under the Obama years? We would always hear, oh, obstruction. Obstruction was just a fancy way of saying Republicans won't do what Obama is telling them to do because they're Republicans and they got elected because they said they would oppose Obama. But that was called obstruction and obstructionism. And that was unacceptable, you see. Meanwhile, when the Democrats now stand in the way of Trump's agenda at every turn, that's considered checks and balances. See, this is the game that the media plays. This is the game that the left is into. And I just wish that they would establish some degree of honesty and consistency, because then I could take them seriously when they talk about the Constitution. But when Democrats like Nancy Pelosi talk about the Constitution, it's a little bit like when most Democrats on the left start to talk about the Bible. You know, they, they sound like they're coming across it in the teleprompter for the first time. You know, yeah, it's like my favorite book in the New Testament, Job, you know, that one. Or maybe it was the Old Testament. Who knows? It's like when they talk about guns, too. A lot of Democrats, they talk about guns. You know, they, they just want to, I just want to ban the, like, bazooka chain machine gun thingy because it's bad and it hurts people. I always sit around and I say, maybe if they were so upset about what guns do and about, and they had so many problems that they thought could be solved with gun control, they would at least learn something about guns. But I, but I digress. On this issue of, of the, the wall and the national emergency, uh, that Democrats are pretending this is not an emergency, I really hope comes back to bite them in 2020. And here's how I think it might happen. Right now, they think this is good politics, gets their, their base of crazy people energized, all these left-wing, uh, you know, angry hippie types who are all for the Green New Deal and all this stuff. They get excited about this. But here's what's going to happen. Congress is not going to take any action on asylum. Congress is not going to do anything to deal with the fact that we have now a border that has incredibly large loopholes, that has all kinds of ways that people can can abuse, uh, can abuse to get in. So what's going to happen is we're going to have a year where at the end of the year, going into the 2020 elections, there will be, I would, I would bet, 500,000 people who have crossed into the country illegally or in a asylum request, a request gambit that is all but certain to be fraudulent and fake. So you'll have a half a million people who will have crossed, which is starting to get back to the numbers of the worst days ever at the border. And here's what they won't tell you, but I will. 
the crisis now is worse than it was in the early 2000s when they got up to a million a year because the rate of removal of those million was very was was very high compared to what it is now. A lot of people who were crossing illegally were being caught and immediately deported during the worst times of illegal crossing at the southern border. Now, the number who are being quickly processed and turned around for deportation is a much lower percentage. So whereas you had maybe a a million people a year coming into the country then, but you had hundreds of thousands of them immediately deported. Now, because of changes in the law, because of changes in the interpretation of the law by judges, and because of the abuse of the asylum process and the fact that the courts are so incredibly backlogged, you know, with all of that going on, uh, you have a very small percentage of these people who are going to be deported, which means that the problem, the crisis at the border is actually much, much worse. Because now the illegal crossings are going to result in permanent illegal aliens in this country. They're not going anywhere. So not only is there a crisis at the border based on the numbers we're already seeing, by the end of the year, the numbers are going to show that this is as bad as it's ever been from an overall or or at least close to what it's been from an overall crossing number. But the number of or the percentage and number of those who have crossed into the country and have been deported is going to be so low that we're going to see as we have a near open border situation at our southern border that anybody who shows up and says they want to be in this country and tells a tale and has a story is going to be able to stay and that is absolutely a crisis if you believe in sovereignty if you believe in rule of law what is happening the border is a crisis and so for the democrats to have gone to all these lengths right now to say there is no crisis i hope I hope that 51% or more of the American voting public is paying attention and realizes the Democrats are a bunch of liars on this issue. They are liars. It is absolutely within the president's authority to declare this emergency. It is an emergency, and building a wall in areas that are particularly susceptible to illegal crossing would help this crisis. Effective today, the United States will impose additional sanctions on regime officials. These men work to block aid for people in need and suppress peaceful protests while their tyrant danced in Caracas. Their actions will not go unpunished. More sanctions from the U.S. against Venezuela trying to get rid of this absolute tyrannical jerk maduro who is just continuing on with the stupid policies of his predecessor chavez Um, and there's obviously so much we could sit here and talk about when it comes to what a a failed state and a catastrophe venezuela has become and i think it's it's important to note it did not have to be this way it did not have to come apart like this. Venezuela did not suffer from some, you know, horrible, unforeseeable financial calamity. Uh, Venezuela is not trying to recover from some terrible civil war or something. The, The problem with Venezuela is people got into power who believe in Marxist 
doctrine and the redistribution of wealth, who embrace class warfare and anti-Americanism as an explanation for the shortcomings of their country uh, and their countrymen. And this is the end result of all of that, right? This is the end result. And I, I do think that we need to strike a careful balance between trying to push for the ouster of or, or help. You see this thing, even when you start to say it, I know I'm the ex-CIA guy, so I start talking about coup and everyone goes, oh, a coup. And I'm like, look, guys, I, I'm out of that game. I don't know anything. I have no idea what's going on at that level. Uh, but just even discussing helping to get rid of somebody in a Central or South American country from the U.S. government perspective brings up a lot of history and a lot of baggage with it. And I think we're making the right call by backing Guaido. I would also note, though, that the possibility for there to be some form of overreach, blowback, mission creep, all that stuff, essentially, we end up getting more involved in this than we want to. And that, that's very real. We got a little reminder of that, I think, yesterday when Jorge Ramos, most well-known, I think, for being a Univision anchor and de facto open borders advocate, you know, very concerned about illegal immigrants, at least when they're Latino, illegal immigrants in general, he seems to have less less of a strong position on. But he is very, very favorable in his coverage and in his analysis and all of that to the illegal immigrant Latino population in this country for obvious reasons. You know, he's a millionaire who lives in Miami and he can talk all the time about how he just wants there to be more and more illegal aliens in, in this country. Uh, but he was detained yesterday after having an interview with Maduro that Maduro and his people didn't like very much. Blake Clip 10. I conducted an interview with uh, Nicolas Maduro. I asked him if I can call him either a president or a dictator because, as you know, millions of Venezuelans don't consider him a president. Then we um, discussed reports of torture and human rights abuses and political prisoners. And at the end, I showed him a video that I personally took last Sunday of uh, three kids behind a trash truck looking for food. He just couldn't stand it. He didn't want to continue the interview. He tried to close my iPad where I showed him the video. And then he said the interview was over. I didn't want to give them my cell phone. So they turned off the light of the room and a group of uh, agents came in. They took forcefully my backpack, uh, my cell phone, and they forced us to give them uh, our passcodes. After two hours of being detained, because we couldn't leave the palace, two hours of being detained, they allow us to, to leave the presidential palace. I think we'll never have that interview again. They don't want the world to see uh, what we did. Now, that should send a little bit of a chill down your spine. I mean, we are dealing with a, we are dealing with a thug government here. And any journalists who are down there are taking some risks when they sit down assuming they're going to ask real questions, assuming they're going to pose to this guy uh, the reality of the country that, he, I mean, he is presented over the complete and utter ruination of Venezuela. It did not have to be this way, but he has been intransigent and he's corrupt 
and he's a bad guy. And when you ask a bad guy why he is that way, he tends not to take it very well. And obviously Maduro did not take it well, did not uh, want to have to answer these kinds of questions. And so they seized him. But I would note, you know, Jorge Ramos, producer Mike, is he a, is he a U.S.? I think he's a U.S. citizen. So let's assume he is. Yes, he is. Um, he is. Yeah. So Jorge Ramos is a U.S. citizen. You know, you grab one of ours and I, I'm because we are principled and we are conservatives and we are Americans. Darn it. You know, you grab one of ours. We we unify. We are together. You know, Jorge Ramos is is one of us. He is a U.S. citizen. So. You lay a hand on Jorge in some foreign country, you're some dictator, some stooge, some some squad of of uh, of ruffians. Uh we 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 need the full weight and force of the United States government to make sure that you get out of there. This is what I mean by this stuff can get out of hand very very quickly. You know, if they had seized our diplomats, that's an act of war. What if they seize a bunch of American citizen journalists? What if Maduro seizes them? Are we going to escalate even further? I think the answer has to be yes. You, you can't touch our people. You know, it's like Jack Nicholson in The Departed. There are guys you can't hit. And as far as I'm concerned, and as far as, you know, I think all Americans should be concerned on the world stage, no foreign government is able to, without obviously legal justification, but no foreign government is able to take one of our people. And certainly not for an interview. So I got to tell you on this one, I stand with Jorge, man. I'm glad Jorge's out of there because if we had to send in our guys to uh, to free him and his team, I'd be all for it. A, a, a U.S. citizen, and I know some of you really don't like Jorge, and I get that, but a citizen is a citizen, man. He's one of ours. So we got to remember that. Uh, but Venezuela, that just shows you how quickly this thing can, can actually spiral out of control. That's why we got to be very careful. We want Maduro gone, but we don't want to make this our problem. We've got enough problems here. Well, look at the Democrats in the House and the Green New Deal and the lunacy that these people are are pushing for, the craziness that they're talking about. We got our hands full handling all that stuff. We, we don't want to be in a position where we have to try to deal with all the deprivation and destruction inside of Venezuela, man. We, we do not want another reconstruction mission. So we'll keep an eye on it, but we got to keep arm's length, too. The only dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company out there is Global Verification Network. You need background checks to be done for any business, large or small. So give Global Verification a call. Even if you've already got somebody in the past who's done your background checks, Global Verification Network will give you a more competitive price, a program that's tailored to your needs. And also they'll make sure that on those on those cases where you really need an answer and you need one fast, they will get it done for you. For all your background vetting and investigations, this is the place you should go. Call 877-695-1179. Make sure you tell them you heard about them on the Buck Sexton Show. That's 877-695-1179. Or you can just go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com. Global Verification Network never offshores your information. Leave no stone unturned. Make sure you go with Global Verification Network. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. 
it is more likely than not that there is a conflict, possibly a full-blown war with an emerging nuclear power. He is not merely being cavalier with a threat about nuclear war. He's being cavalier in a way that makes him seem demented. These are the messages from a person who is not well, from a leader who is not fit for office. After so, a nuclear holocaust. Or after a million die in Seattle. And that's where we are. This he, is not an exaggeration. Probably closer to a, an outright war with North Korea. About a 30% chance of war, I'd say, from where I sit right now. Easily construe what he's been saying as a declaration or at least a threat of war. What is the ignition point for Kim Jong-un's fuse with this provocative rhetoric? Trump's comments about nuclear weapons have experts worried he could literally inadvertently trigger a catastrophe. You have reason to be scared of a war that could wipe out 500,000 people. No, I just think he wants weeks. to use nukes. That's what I think he feels. Well, what a bunch of lunatics. That's just giving you a little a little sense of what's going on here with the uh, the media as Trump enters this moment of high stakes diplomacy in Hanoi. I will say that uh, I never got to Hanoi when I was in Vietnam. I only got to Saigon, but I'm sure Hanoi is a very interesting place to visit. So Trump's there right now. The media have been saying for a long time that he was going to start. I mean, you heard it. They were saying, oh, the risk of nuclear war. They were all so concerned about it. Now they're worried that Trump is trying too hard to get a peace deal. Whatever it is that Trump is doing, that is always and in all ways the most awful thing for them. That's the thing that they cannot forgive because Trump is the worst. In fact, the libs are so hateful toward Trump that you don't ever really pick up that they hate Kim Jong-un or, or that they find this character to be odious. Uh, there was a, a pretty stark piece today in the Daily Mail that broke down some of Kim Jong-un's most sadistic hits. This is from the Daily Mail. Kim Jong-un is using barbaric methods to, uh, to purge officials and cling on to power According to an investigation out of South Korea, the dictator has had 421 officials executed and exiled since seizing power in 2011, with victims being fed naked to hunting dogs, blown up with anti-aircraft guns, burned alive with flamethrowers, and hanged. In some cases, entire families of officials have been executed while others were imprisoned in concentration camps and erased from society. Kim is also said to have ordered the execution of his own family members, including his uncle Jang Song Taek, who was executed in 2013, and his half-brother Jong Nam, who was assassinated at a Malaysian airport in 2017. Some of you probably remember that one. That's one he had... Uh, or when the when Kim Jong Un had two female assassins go up to Kim Jong Un and wipe uh, a a nerve gas a nerve toxin across his mouth and and the guy then died a pretty brazen attack but this is who we're we're dealing with here I mean this is the individual that the media spends far less time updating the American people on, because I think if they understood just how sadistic the regime 
is and how and how how sadistic it has been, then maybe they'd have a greater understanding of the status quo is not acceptable. That us just waiting around to see how advanced North Korea's nuclear program can get, uh, that's uh, that, that's not going to end well for anybody, for anyone involved. Oh, I, I do have to say that the some of the reporting about Kim Jong-un is, is, is kind of interesting. This guy shows up. That's not about him being a sadistic maniac. This guy shows up in, a, in an armored train that's traveled uh, 2,000 miles from the Korean peninsula. And he is... Uh, it's said that he might be wearing two-inch lifts. So Kim's kind of a widow guy. Uh, and also, you know, he is smoking, which is only interesting because the Washington Post reports, since a nationwide anti-smoking campaign began in North Korea in 2016, Kim Jong-un has rarely been seen with a cigarette in his hand. But this week, as the young North Korean leader made his way to Vietnam, we got confirmation he hasn't given up the habit. Japan's TBS JNN caught footage of Kim pacing up on the platform, taking a smoke during his 65-hour train journey from Pyongyang. So he's a smoker. So I guess him and Obama have that in common. Remember, Obama used to smoke cigarettes. The media would, and not, not that I care, you know, fine. He's the guy who smokes cigarettes. The media was always a little touchy about it, though. You know, we don't want to show anybody that uh, Obama's a smoker. Well, it's definitely touchy in North Korea for whatever reason. Um, Mike, producer Mike makes a good point here that they should really like Kim Jong-un insofar as he's willing to take a train 2,000 miles. You know, maybe... Maybe Kim Jong-un would be on board for the Green New Deal that makes a train that goes from the continental United States to Hawaii. I, I suppose that is that is possible. Um, anyway, there's a look, there's a lot of pageantry around this. There's a lot of media attention and there are thousands of journalists right now who have converged on Hanoi to talk about this. I have uh, pretty low expectations, as I've been telling you. This is why I'm not leading the show with this. I know there are a lot of people that are uh, spending probably more time on this than I am. But I mean, I just have to say that I don't see this. I don't see this resulting in any kind of uh, major breakthrough. It, it's just very unlikely that North Korea is going to give up nuclear weapons. And, and I can't help but think that part of this is the, the biggest part of this is that there's obviously a incredibly militaristic outlook from the North Korean state and the North Korean state, the propaganda, we always think of propaganda as it just affects the people like the masses. But in the case of North Korea, how much have the leadership bought into this? Uh, how much of what we are seeing with the North Korean uh, people and the, the incredibly xenophobic and, and racist caricatures of Americans and of other Asians that, is fed to the North Korean people on a regular basis. Uh, how much of that is also internalized by at least some of the senior leadership? I, I think a lot. It would be fascinating if I could sit down and have a, an honest off the, off the record conversation with any world leader. I mean, Kim Jong-un would be an incredibly interesting guy to talk to. I, you know, he is a, I mean, he's a mass murderer, so, but then again, I mean, it would be interesting to sit down and talk to a lot of mass murderers. Um, you know, what does he really believe? What does he really think? He went to boarding school in Switzerland, so he's been exposed to the outside world. Uh, 
I know that a lot of people were angry at Trump today because he said that Kim Jong-un doesn't seem like he's messed up from his upbringing. He said, oh, Trump is calling dictators again. I always just want to say to them, you know, guys, he's trying to get a deal done here. He's trying to make some headway. Can you just, can you let Trump operate a little bit without just breathing down his neck about everything on this one? He's trying to essentially pull off the near impossible. And if he pulls off the near impossible in this case, he will have saved likely... I don't know when, I don't know what time frame, but it would save hundreds of thousands of lives. You know, that, that's a very likely scenario. Hundreds of thousands of lives saved. And I think that when the president has an option to do that and is trying to do that, people should maybe just back off a tiny, tiny bit in the media. I'm not saying they can't hold them accountable, but I'm just saying that they criticize every word. You know, they're so hype with that. Again, they do that with Trump on everything. Everything Trump says is terrible. And we'll see what happens in this summit. It goes on for a few days. Trump will be back. In fact, Trump will be at CPAC at the end of the week. So I'm sure he'll give some insight there. And I, I'm, I'm guessing I'll, I'll be there because I'll be at CPAC about how, how this whole week goes. But the summit is going on right now. Yesterday on the show, I talked a bit about who gets the presumption of innocence and who doesn't. And Professor Dershowitz, who himself has had his reputation uh, tarnished with allegations, or at least uh, as he has been very vociferous in his denunciations of them, uh, these fake allegations. Uh, But this is a real problem because we as a society need to protect the presumption of innocence as something that is not political, but is a principle. But we also don't want to allow the left to get away with weaponizing the presumption of innocence and only using it for their own side, and whereas our side gets it taken away, creating this imbalance, right? Only Democrats get the presumption. We do not get the presumption of innocence. And I meant to get to this, the latest from Virginia where, you know, right now you've got Chicago has the R. Kelly trial and the Jussie Smollett situation, or, well, the arrest of R. Kelly and the Jussie Smollett arrest to deal with. And I think Rahm Emanuel stepped down from being the mayor, and they had an election today there, too. What's up, Windy City? Uh, and, you know, so, so they're getting a lot of attention there. And you've gotten far less of a media focus on what's happening in Virginia, where you had this just string of incredibly damaging stories about the top three, one, two, three, count them, politicians for the state of Virginia, all of whom were enmeshed in major scandals, right? We had uh, Northam with his blackface photo and his yearbook, which he lied about and then kind of didn't lie about, but still lies about. And you also have Mark Herring, number three guy, who said that Northam should step down for his blackface photo But then it came out that Herring himself had maybe had blackface photos, he said in the past. But the number two guy, the lieutenant governor of the state of Virginia, Justin Fairfax, he still stands accused of two very serious sex crimes. I mean, two sexual assaults. And Fairfax doesn't plan on resigning. He called for an FBI investigation. And and I wish that... You know, this is one of the legacies of the effort to destroy Kavanaugh uh, that I, I just wish people would understand is is completely 
preposterous. The FBI is not the super police. You're not just, oh, you're not in a position to say, oh, something happened that I want to get the definitive answer on it. So let's just call in the FBI. That's not how it works. Okay. The FBI is not the super police and people need to stop pretending that they are. Uh, but this is also what I think Joy Reid at MSNBC when she said that her blog was hacked and that homophobic language was used by somebody pretending to be her 10 years ago on her blog that nobody was reading. Uh, but I don't think she actually filed the report with the FBI. So she was pretty sly. She said she wanted an FBI investigation, but she didn't actually take it to that next step. Justin Fairfax, lieutenant governor of Virginia, has got two women who have come forward on the record to, yes, that's right, credibly, that does not, that's not the same as saying proven, but credibly accuse him of sexual assault. Fairfax went on on offense and, and then some. Play clip one. If we go backwards and we rush to judgment and we allow for uh, political lynchings without uh, any due process, any facts, any evidence being heard, uh, then I think we do a disservice to this very body in which we all serve. Uh, and I want to stand in this moment uh, in the truth, uh, not only which has tested my Constitution personally, but it's testing the Constitution uh, of the Commonwealth of Virginia and of the United States of America. Now, I'm I'm a little torn in two directions on this issue of Fairfax. Just and, and this is a, an issue really for the Democrats more. But just let's understand, first and foremost, that you have three politicians with two of them admitting misconduct that was racist in their past, whether you think they should resign for that or not. But the only guy that as of a week ago, looked like he might be forced to resign. They were going to impeach him in the Virginia legislature was Justin Fairfax, the only African-American of the three. That's a that's a bad look for the Democrats. So you could start with that. But then you go into the dynamics at work here with the Fairfax situation. And here's a guy who, you know, I, look, I, I find his, his accusers credible. I can't say they haven't proven it beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. So there can't be any legal sanctions against him yet. But it sounds to me like these are credible accusations. The problem, though, is that this is a, this is a classic. I mean, both of his accusers are in he said, she said situations. Now, unlike in the Kavanaugh, in the Kavanaugh circumstance, there is an admitted uh, there is admitted sexual conduct with both of these accusers. He's just saying it was consensual. They're saying it wasn't. Um, but this isn't I don't remember when I don't remember what year I don't remember remember what house I don't have any facts. I don't have anything to back this up. Everything about this is lines up from what we've seen so far. And of course, the media buried these stories and didn't want to. The Washington Post didn't want to run with this story because Fairfax is a Democrat and he's an African-American and they just weren't interested in in running with the story, even though based on the Kavanaugh standard, they would have. But I find his accusers credible, but I'm also somebody who wants there to be due process. And so my criticism of this is how do we adjudicate in an era of sexual assault allegations that have you know rocked and taken down some very powerful people how do we adjudicate it? I mean, if you are a public figure and you're accused by somebody of sexual assault, are you just supposed to step down? I think the answer has to be no. I think there has to be some process. There has to be some due process for somebody like Justin Fairfax. So there is this there there is this part of it that feels like the guy, as much as I look, I, I, I believe the women who are accusing him. 
And it's not just because of politics or anything like that. I, the stories, it all lines up. And the way this guy spoke about those women when they when they accused him, as was initially reported, it just I believe it. That's not the same thing as saying it's proven, though. I can't say they've proven anything. They could, in fact, be settling scores against him. This could be some kind of a personal vendetta. And I, I cannot rule that out. That's why I believe in a process. The other part of me or, or the other part of this discussion, though, that I think we need to just keep in mind at some level is that if Fairfax was a Republican and these allegations were made, you would see nonstop coverage. I mean, MSNBC would probably have a, a timer in the bottom of the screen for all of their segments, you know, time elapsed since Fairfax allegations without a resignation. I mean, they would put so much pressure and so much heat on a Republican to resign in these circumstances. Now, that doesn't make it right for us to do the same thing. But I do I do think that it's it's noteworthy that this double standard now is something that we're kind of accepting because we have principles, because we have scruples on the right about due process and, and we don't get caught up in the same degree of hysterics around sexual assault allegations and all the rest of it because of all of that we are vulnerable in a way that democrats are not so even in a case like this where the allegations are very credible i will say that democrats deserve some degree of due process they will not respond in kind they do not respond to my good faith with good faith of their own they like the double standard and are acting to maintain it and the media silence around Fairfax is just more evidence of this. So I'm going to continue to follow this story, but this is a complicated one. I don't think he's going to step down, by the way. I don't think it's going to happen. It sounds like the plot of a not particularly creative movie, but it, but it apparently happened. There was an Amtrak train outside of uh, Eugene, Oregon, on its way to Los Angeles with 200 people on board and it got stuck in deep snow for over 36 hours. Now, by the way, this this definitely could be a plot of a, of a movie or a short or something like that um, because they had all this snow and people got stuck for 36 hours. And I got to tell you, first of all, the stories here, it's pretty cute. Turns out that people were telling stories and playing cards, and there was, quote, a giant kumbaya party. Uh, they had heat and power and food on the train, so they weren't cold and they weren't hungry, and, you know, everything was, they, they could look at their iPads and everything else, and they basically had a big snow party, or like a snow day party on this train uh, with people dancing in the aisles, playing music, some guy busted out his ukulele, just happened to have a ukulele, and, and played it for the amusement of his fellow passengers. You had 20 students from Japan who just happened to be on this train. They must have had quite a little adventure, as well as a few dozen other college students. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a nice story, and I think I've got an idea for a pretty formulaic you know movie plot or something or, or at least episode of a tv show stuck on the amtrak train in the snow for 36 hours although i can tell you this even with power and heat and all that stuff the 
infamous Acela Corridor, which connects uh, New York City and D.C. and Boston, right? So it goes from Boston south through New York, through Philadelphia, and, and ends in D.C. If you had an incident where the Acela train was stuck for 36 hours and people weren't able to get off of it, let me tell you something. The Acela train, after about, I was going to say three hours, would turn into some kind of scene from like Mad Max or The Walking Dead. Like everybody on that train thinks that they've got really important things to do and they need to get moving right away. So the Acela train is going to be a slightly different vibe. I don't think it would have turned into a kumbaya party. And I got to tell you, whatever, I have to ride the Acela a fair amount because I go back and forth between New York and D.C. And you got to pay attention because there's always other journalists on that train. So if you're on the phone, as many of you know, on an Amtrak train, and you're like, hey, Bob, what's going on? What's the latest with the deal? Are we getting the, you know, whenever you're talking, everybody on that train can pretty much hear you. So you really have to pay attention to it. And the food on Amtrak, I still don't understand how the food is so bad. It, they've improved some of the non-perishables. Like at least they have better granola bars and potato chips available now. But how hard would it be in an era of food trucks that show up all over the place and turn out gourmet cuisine, how hard would it be to have Amtrak food service serve stuff that was slightly above edible? I don't I don't think it's really asking too much. I don't think it should be considered impossible for us to get to a point where Amtrak would be able to serve decent food. But I think that if you're stuck in snowbanks in outside of Oregon and I guess I guess a rural area, whatever food they give you, I bet that frozen hoagie that they've been holding on to in the Amtrak food cart for the last five or six years, I bet it tasted pretty darn good when it got microwaved. But it was a nice little story, and it just reminded me of how train travel is is the most for me the most uh, preferable and civilized way to get from city to city in the East Coast. But that's only because we all assume we're not going to hit any traffic or any problems. The moment things start to go bad, people on that train, you can just feel the Acela crew. I don't mean the, the actual crew. I mean the people who ride the Acela. Their blood pressure collectively rises because they're all so important and have so much stuff to do. It starts to feel very, very different vibe. So anyway, nice little story out of Oregon. I know we're on a great station in Oregon. Shields high to all of you up in the Northwest who listen to the show. We have a fantastic roll call up next. Show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for roll call. Just want to remind everybody that I will be at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, this uh, this Friday. I will be there in the morning, and that's the thing you probably want to see. It'll be on the main stage, a debate over Syria and the Trump administration's decision-making in Syria. I'll also be moderating a panel on cyber warfare in the evening, but I think the Syria thing is the thing that's going to be the most exciting one. So definitely, if you're going to be in the Washington, D.C. area, although technically the conference is in Maryland, it's at the Gaylord Convention Center 
in Maryland, which just south of Washington, D.C., uh, you should definitely come by. And if you see me walking the grounds at CPAC, please come up, say hi. As many members of the team as I can uh, give high fives to, chat up a little bit, get to meet, the better. So that's this Friday, CPAC. I'm hoping some young Team Buck, some Team Buck Campus shows up. This will be my first year as a media person at CPAC. I went to CPAC as a just a, a person going to CPAC to check it out maybe in 2006 or 2007. So it's been over a decade. I was a young CIA officer and I just went to patrol the grounds at CPAC and see what was going on. So I'll be there this year in my capacity as a commentator, radio host, all that good stuff. Let's get to your roll call thoughts, my friends. Robin, first up. So the 12-week family leave, should it be a federal mandate or law? No. Is it beneficial for families? Absolutely. I realize you have not had a child or actually given birth. It is hard work. It is like your insides running a marathon and then you aren't permitted to sleep, eat, or bathe regularly for days. The mother isn't even released by medical professionals to drive for four to six weeks, depending on the method of delivery. Six weeks is essential. Eight weeks is enough to establish a decent milk supply and feeding schedule. Twelve weeks is emotionally healthy. Robin, I have zero insider expertise on this matter, as I am neither a woman who has given birth nor even a father of a child and married to a woman who has therefore given birth. Uh, so I defer to all of your knowledge and expertise on this. Uh, but I think you you understand my, my point is not that family leave isn't good. It's that mandatory 12 weeks of family leave is going to be, if that's a federal mandate, that's going to be a problem for some businesses. It just is. And if it's a federal mandate, then there'll also be concerns about uh, hiring women for some small businesses. So, you know, there's nothing, nothing in this world is free or easy, my friends. There's trade-offs all over the place. Rita writes, well, Buck, we knew it would be a difficult year watching Dems with a bit of power, but it's just begun and they've set a new low. I cannot decide if the GOP planned it or if they stumbled onto it blindly, but between McConnell and Sass, the Dems have been forced to expose their creepy little underbellies. All their talking points have been reduced to simple yammering. If only one child is saved or women's health or separating children, if the GOP is smart and ruthless enough to use this ammo, shields high. Uh, yeah, Rita, it's, it's, it's appalling and it's something that we should not just skip past quickly that Democrats are so, so willing, so very willing to either run interference for, put up a smokescreen for, or just openly advocate for infanticide, which is what they're doing. They can pretend that it's already in the law, but it's not. And if it were already in the law, then why not just pass this law to affirm the law already on the books? But they know that it will force some very uncomfortable questions, as we've been discussing here on the show, if, in fact, there was in the law criminal culpability for the destruction of a born fetus, also known as a baby. Uh, and that is why the left, look, the, the left has embraced uh, evil and destruction here when it comes to the issue of life. And nobody ever wants to believe that about themselves. Even bad people like to think that there's some explanation, there's some justification for their badness. Uh, and that's what we see happening here with many 
other proponents of this policy on the left. Steven writes, Buck, your Trey Gowdy isn't too bad. Sounds, sounds a little bit like the chef from the Muppets. You need to go a little more Gomer Pyle. Keep up the good work. Shields high. Well, Steven, thank you very much for telling me this thing over here. The Trey Gowdy sounds kind of like Trey Gowdy. You know, I, I, I think my Trey Gowdy is kind of close, guys. I know a lot of you in the South say my Trey Gowdy is terrible, and I, I respect that, but it's not it's not that far off, all right? It's not, you know, Buck, maybe if you spend more time with Trey on the television set, you know, doing the green room discussion, having a little chit-chat here and there. Come on, it sounds a little bit... Don't make me start playing Trey Gowdy sound bites. You know, the Congress has the oversight capability... Come on. It's my tray is not, you know what I don't have? And I realize that it's a real shortcoming in my impersonation repertoire. I don't have a Trump. And I hear so many people do bad Trump impressions. And I don't want to be yet another bad Trump impression because you really have to work on your Trump and it has to be good or else it's, it's like a Scottish accent. You got to really think about it and work on it or else you're just, hey, laddie. If you want my body, you think I'm sexy, come on. You know, you you just end up copying Mike Myers from So I Married an Axe Murder, which is actually not a bad place to start. Uh, But you need to work on your Scottish accent before you can throw a Scottish accent out there. And some of you are probably like, Buck, whatever happened to your character, Angus McManus? I haven't forgot. Angus isn't dead and buried. I just don't do as many characters on this show because I feel like there's a national radio audience. We got... You know, hundreds of thousands of people listening to the show coast to coast. I I, I don't want to, you know, I, I feel like I only have so much time. And I don't know, maybe I'm talking myself into doing some more some more skits and characters and things. Probably third, you know, third hour of the show. That's when I tend to loosen it up a little bit, change up the topics a bit. You'll still get news of the day and deep political analysis in the front half of the show. But maybe back of the show. Maybe back of the show, Buck, there's some room for Trey Gowdy to show up and start to... Maybe, right? Maybe. Hey, your Trey Gowdy's terrible sexton. Get a grip, lad. Yeah, I know. I know. Kristen writes, Yes, we definitely can agree it should be Kristen and spelled with an E. Well, you're darn right, Kristen. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh-oh, I see something. Uh, TJ writes, Buck, I'm a little disappointed you didn't get to sit in on the Governor of Colorado interview on Rising this morning. The fact that they are potentially nullifying their electoral college votes for the majority vote of the country is a crying shame. To be consistent, he should just hand his governorship over to President Trump since he clearly does not believe in his own state sovereignty and its ability to govern and represent itself as part of this union. It's not surprising Considering the lack of historical knowledge in this country of the inability by the left to understand the significance of the Electoral College and the fact that this country is a collection of states that represents themselves. But when a governor of one of those states cannot comprehend that fact, well, that is truly concerning. TJ, uh, just so you know, I I didn't duck the interview or anything like that. I I just wasn't able to do it. Uh, There was a scheduling conflict. So sometimes on Rising, you just get my co-host on an interview. uh, And other times it's just me in an interview because... We can't make the timing work to get to get the interviewer or interviewee rather there when we're both there. Harry writes, hey, Buck, leftists should be careful what they ask for. Wouldn't giving uh, wouldn't giving anyone who wants reparations a one way ticket out of this country be fulfilling? In my memory, that's how uh, certain countries were formed. You know, 
uh, Harry, you know, it, it's it's a re- reparations is a concept that people will push for. Um, it's a concept that people will discuss. They generally speaking don't have um, they don't have specifics in mind, but it, it does serve the purposes of the left of of some degree of uh, just uh, stoking more identity politics. And as we know, that's very, uh, very important to the left. Patrick writes, take the pain. It's platoon. Shields high. OSS. Sully, a.k.a. Patrick. Um, Patrick, you got it, my friend. Take the pain. That's when Tom Berenger, who's playing Barnes in platoon, covers the guy's mouth after he's been wounded. You know, I, I think Tom Berenger is the best part of that movie, to be honest with you. Um, I, I think Platoon, for me, in retrospect, is a pretty overrated movie. I did not think it's the masterpiece that a lot of people seem to think it is. But uh, it, it has some good some good sequences, and Barnes is certainly one of the standouts. David writes, The irony of the left is that Jorge Ramos got his own medicine today by the government uh, government socialist policies of Venezuela, the same policies he wants here in the U.S. I just wish they had thrown away the key. Um, well, you know, David, Jorge Ramos, as I understand it, is a U.S. citizen. So he's one of ours, and you can't, you can't take one of ours and lock him up when they're being a journalist in a foreign country. You know, we, we got to take care of our own, no matter what their politics are. Uh, we don't have to take care of other people's, according to the law, but Democrats disagree with that. But we take care of our own. And, and my, I believe Jorge Ramos is a U.S. citizen, which means that uh, he's, one, he's one of ours. And we got to go in there and get him if we have to go. If, if need be, if need be, I'd, I'd give the order myself to go in there and, and get Ramos get Ramos out. Uh, so U.S. citizen is a U.S. citizen. James writes... The movie quote was from Expendables, Jason Statham. James, I don't think you're, I don't know if, maybe I quoted the Expendables by accident, but that's not the one. That's, uh, somebody else got it. Take the Pain is from, uh, is from Platoon. Although maybe Jason Statham says it in the Expendables as well. Paul and Carmen, bravo, Buck. Spot on today on so many of your comments, I wouldn't know where to begin your delivery many times make me smile, sometimes makes me laugh, and other times make me say out loud, right on, keep it going. Well, Paul and Carmen, thank you so much. It means a lot to me that there are folks out there that really appreciate the show that I'm putting on every day and, and that it it brings out these different ideas and emotions. I mean, I'm hoping people get fired up by this show, learn from this show, want to share this show with their friends. That's why I put everything I can into it every single day. Like I said, team, if you're in the New York, I'm sorry, forget that. The D.C. area, not New York area, D.C. area, this this Thursday, Friday, Saturday for CPAC, I will be there. Please come check it out. Until tomorrow, Shields High. AARP is well known, right? It's a big organization for seniors, but guess what? Like a lot of very big, well-known organizations, it's very left-wing, wants to support Universal healthcare probably wants to support all kinds of universal programs. That's a bit of a Democrat socialist vibe to it. I got an idea. How about AMAC instead? AMAC is the conservative alternative as a seniors organization to AARP. And that's why I think AMAC is the way to go for you. 
Over 1.5 million Americans have already joined AMAC, and they're getting great value, like discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, but also they're part of an organization that supports conservative values and is pushing for policies that will make this country great. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight. Become a member today. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better for you, better for America.